Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Singsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by David Fedman, Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Irvine, to discuss landscapes of empire. David will share his research on the legacy of the Japanese Empire's foresting initiative on the Korean Peninsula, taking a look at collaboration and resistance between colonized Koreans and Japanese imperial authorities, how afforestation was rich with oppressive discourse designed to raise Japanese ecology and lower Koreans, and how the initiative continued to shape the landscape of Korea after the empire fell. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, David. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interest has brought you there? Uh, well, uh, I am a historian of Japan and Korea. Most of my research to date has focused on the environmental history and the historical geography of Japanese imperialism. As for what brought me here, I, I suppose I'll talk about the nature of the book project under discussion. I'm not sure exactly how far back to go other than to say that I have since childhood been an avid hiker and backpacker and mountaineer. Uh, I've spent a lot of time outdoors, and that has always informed my approach to the past. I grew up in Virginia. I uh, spent a lot of time in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Also spent a lot of time exploring uh, Civil War battlefields with my father. And those experiences, I think, really cultivated in me from a young age an interest in how stories about the past are lodged in the landscape itself. So whenever I'm hiking or in the mountains or wherever, I, I always kind of try to keep my eyes open for uh, historical artifacts and, and uh, ways to think about the past. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the seeds for this particular project were sown immediately, the, the year after I graduated from college, I received a fellowship to go to Hokkaido to research the history of mountaineering, of alpinism in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was in that context that I, well, first that I had a, a chance to read and reread Conrad Tottman's The Green Archipelago, which is a, a groundbreaking work of Japanese environmental history and one that has shaped my own approach to uh, uh, writing this particular book. Uh, but I also had a chance to interact with a wide range of Japanese hikers, scholars, mountaineers, foresters. Uh, and it was in this context that I sort of was first exposed to a relentless stream of commentary about Japan's own unique relationship with its forests, uh, that the, the Japanese people have over centuries nurtured a unusually deep appreciation and tradition of stewardship uh, of their uh, of the forests and mountains that comprise uh, the, the better part of the Japanese archipelago. Uh, and this was interesting to me. It was also kind of puzzling and problematic on a number of levels, uh, in part because I also had an eye 
on what Japanese timber companies and corporations were doing to the forests of Southeast Asia at the time. And so the question, how do you square the two? Uh, what is the relationship between the verdancy of Japan's forests at home and their role in uh, logging and in some cases clear-cutting forests abroad? That was a, a, a kind of piqued my interest and it was something I carried with me into graduate school. Uh, and it wasn't until graduate school that I really pivoted into Korean studies. With the, the encouragement of uh, my advisors, uh, I began to take this broad interest in environmental history and how stories about the past are lodged in the landscape and apply them to Japan and its empire, which at the time was really an open field. There, there have, have been a, a of late, there's been sort of a burgeoning interest in the study of the Japanese empire. Uh, but when I entered grad school, there really wasn't much of anything that had been written about the environmental history of Japanese imperialism. That has changed considerably. Uh, there's a, a steady string of books that are about to really, that are on the cusp of publication that are going to fundamentally transform our understanding of the ecological and environmental implications of Japan's territorial expansion. But as a grad student, I was just naturally drawn to these questions and figured that Korea was uh, a really interesting case study. And as I spent more time in Korea, studying the language, doing archival research, I began to gravitate towards this forestry issue in large part because it was everywhere in the archive. Uh, that was one of the things that really struck me most early on was just how rich the historical material was. Everywhere I turned, there were references to different aspects of the colonial forestry enterprise. Uh, and it wasn't difficult at all for me to collect enough material on just a couple of archival digs uh, to begin to lay the groundwork for this project. So uh, it's been many years in the making, really a decade in the making from, from start to finish. Uh, but it's also one that is rooted in this longstanding passion for being outdoors and, and seeing the landscape as an archive in its own right. Yeah, I think anyone who follows you on Twitter can attest to the impressive range of materials that there are on this topic. I love all the maps that you share on there. It's uh, definitely great to see this, this material coming to light that way. So, um, in your recent book, Seeds of Control, Japan's Empire of Forestry in Colonial Korea, uh, it takes a look at what you refer to as, in quotes, imperial forestry, unquote, where the Japanese colonial powers sought to bring in their traditions of forestry to the Korean landscape following the colonization of the peninsula in 1905. Could you describe how this changed the landscape of Korea? How did the Japanese describe the Korean landscape prior to afforestation? And how did this match up with reality? So I'm going to start with your second question first, because it's a really okay. important one. And it was a real puzzle for me uh, as I set out to conduct this research. Uh, how do you sort the rhetoric of deforestation and forest ruination uh, from the reality on, on the ground? Um, uh, I think uh, there, there's no denying the fact that, that Japanese colonial foresters had a vested interest in <laughs> exaggerating uh, the scope, the uh, nature of uh, deforestation on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, it was claims to 
forest ruination, degradation, uh, broader in- narratives of environmental decline were in some ways pillars on which the legitimacy of colonial rule rested. And so the Japanese commentators that I write about in the book went to great pains to embellish the nature of deforestation, describing the Korean peninsula as a a land of Hageyama, a land of bald mountains and red earth, one that had been ruined by the maladministration of the Choson state, uh, by the inability of the Korean people, the Korean farmers to think into the future due to their their supposedly self-interested and malformed environmental ethics. Uh, So you, you can't tell this story without recognizing that the narratives that the Japanese colonial administration spun were in their own right kind of tools or instruments of expropriation and were used kind of conversely to shore up Japan's own legitimacy as enlightened stewards uh, to underscore how Japan and its future-minded foresters and its own rich tradition of uh, silviculture, reforestation, environmental conservation, were going to reclaim the Korean landscape. Uh, So those were very powerful and pervasive narratives uh, that you encounter everywhere in colonial writings from the time, from popular magazines to forestry reports to the maps and accounts of surveyors. I mean, everywhere you look, you'll you'll find references to Korea's famously denuded landscapes, with one key exception, and that's the rich, almost Edenic forests of the northern provinces along the Yalu River Basin. There lies um, a untapped, uh, limitless trove of primeval primary forest growth uh, that awaited the Japanese timber industrialists. So there was also an effort to kind of entice settler colonists, to entice especially capitalists to the Korean peninsula uh, by pointing to some key resource reserves uh, that could be uh, harnessed by the colonial state uh, and its corporate capitalist partners. So there's what I write about in the second chapter of the book is really this bifurcated geographical treatment of the Korean Peninsula. To the south, a land of blighted forests. To the north, a treasure house of uh, forest resources. So this rhetoric is grossly overstated. The, The rhetoric of deforestation is grossly overstated, but it's not completely unfounded. There is very compelling evidence that by the time Japan annexes the Korean Peninsula, deforestation is prevalent, especially in the southern provinces. This is reflected in historical photographs. It's reflected in the price of fuel wood, of timber. Uh, It's reflected in the deliberations and records of the Choson state itself, which was very much alive to the problem of resource scarcity, deforestation, flooding, drought, and and so on. So uh, you you also have to appreciate that, that deforestation was real and was acute and worsening over the course of the 19th century. Uh, so when the Japanese move in, establish their own uh, Bureau of Forestry, they, they do have their work cut out for them. And reforestation is, is really at the forefront of the forestry agenda to carpet these bald mountains uh, with trees and, and second growth forest. 
so so for me as a researcher, it, that was a real challenge to, to get a sense of what was real, what was founded, what is well-evidenced, and, and what was just kind of part of that broader declensionist narrative and politics of representation uh, that are a big part of this story. As to your second question, how did Japanese colonial rule change the landscape of Korea? In so many different ways. Japanese colonial forestry fundamentally transformed the nature of woodland tenure, the boundaries of ownership. One of the first things colonial foresters did upon the creation of a Bureau of Forestry was undertake a comprehensive woodlands survey that became the grounds on which land was redistributed, uh, often siphoned off to Japanese corporations and capitalists under the pretext of, of, of outsourcing reforestation. There were profound material transformations to the Korean landscape as well. Uh, the Japanese uh, Bureau, Colonial Bureau of Forestry oversaw what was planted where. Uh, they introduced all sorts of non-native species to the Korean peninsula, some of which uh, I write about extensively in the book, and some of which remain lodged uh, and growing in the Korean soil to this very day. Also, the colonial state ushered in a new and intense enterprise of industrial logging uh, in the northern provinces uh, that oversaw the development of infrastructure of railways and plugged the Korean peninsula and its resources into the trans-Pacific timber trade, facilitating the movement of Korean timber, board sheets, uh, charcoal, and other material goods into Manchuria, back to the archipelago, and really across the empire. So the effects of colonial rule on Korea's mountains and forests are many and various um, and profound. I mean, there, I, I could I could go on, I suppose <laughs> I'll, I'll say, but for, for those that want to know more, I, I would just uh, point you to the book itself. Sure. Thank you. Just to Go back to something you raised earlier. So you, you're saying that there were signs of deforestation when the Japanese Empire moved into the Korean Peninsula. But uh, what were the causes behind that deforestation in Joseon, Korea? Was it really just malpractice, as the propaganda was saying? Was it the fact that it was Joseon, Korea was industrious, and that's not something you want to promote in a colony? What was the explanation behind that rhetoric? So uh, it... it, it You've put your finger on a very contentious question in some ways, especially in, in Korean studies. How do we account for the environmental problems that exacerbated over the course of the 19th century in Korea? Uh, this is a question that uh, a good number of scholars, especially Korean scholars in Korea, have set their sights on, but there's nothing really in the way of a consensus. We can say for, for certain that as far as deforestation goes, population is a key driver here. There is a very particular geography to deforestation. Uh, it is concentrated in the southern provinces of Korea. It's no accident that it is most acute in the areas where the population is greatest and where competition for resources, for building materials, for fuel, for access to water and irrigation that was essential to the cultivation of rice. So for those reasons, uh, we can get a pretty clear sense of the actual geography of the, the so-called Bald Mountains. There are also issues in the nature of the Choson state's 
forest administration. This is something that my colleague John Lee uh, writes about extensively. He's writing a book on Korea's pre-industrial forestry and uh, really is drawing attention to, uh, the book is provisionally titled Kingdom of the Pines. And John and others have highlighted the extent to which the Choson state itself was invested in the cultivation and protection of pine forest at the expense of everything else. Pine forest really predominates the landscapes of uh, Choson, Korea, uh, which is not necessarily in the best interests of overall forest health. If you have a monoculture, if you just have one tree, uh, that significantly raises the risk of timber blight. Uh, mm. It's often at the expense of the resiliency of these landscapes. Um, and so there's a much deeper history to the monoculture of pine in Korea. Uh, but uh, it, it does point to some issues in the with the actual policy framework that the Choson state had uh, developed over many centuries. But I don't buy at all into this uh, rhetoric coming from colonial foresters that Choson Korea was void of any forest administration, that the, the, the problems of the 20th century could be laid squarely at the feet of Choson administrators or or Confucianism was was another was something else that they they um highlighted as as an underlying problem. Uh, I see that much more uh, as um, a product of sort of the jaundiced and often bigoted views uh, of uh, Japanese colonial administrators who wanted to highlight the depravity of the Korean people so as to justify their own colonial occupation. I find that much more compelling. That's not to say that there weren't problems, uh, but but uh, certainly these, these foresters went out of their way to exaggerate the nature of Choson era, the problems of Choson era forestry, every opportunity that they had. Sure. So the term I mentioned earlier, uh, imperial forestry, is not a new one. Instead, your book places the Japanese empire into a broader global history of empires of foresting colonies. How does the Japanese example contribute to or challenge this broader history of imperial forestry? It's a really good question. Um, as much as I'm trying with this book to write to colleagues in Japanese and Korean studies, I'm also trying to put the Japanese empire on the map of global historians and environmental historians and forest <laughs> historians for that matter. Um, there is a really rich body of scholarship about what many now call green imperialism. And this is a reference to the enduring influence of Richard Grove's work uh, under that title, Green Imperialism, that looks at the really important linkages and re relationships between uh, the British Empire's territorial expansion and the kind of development of environmentalist discourse that as the British Empire expanded and, and absorbed new colonial territories, uh, those territories became important laboratories for thinking about changes in the landscape and the, the relationship between territorial control, imperialism, uh, and resource management and conservation. And Grove makes a very compelling argument looking at uh, the British Empire from many different geographical perspectives. 
And it's a very persuasive argument. There's a good reason that so many scholars have engaged with his ideas, but it has always struck me as thoroughly Eurocentric in its orientation uh, and in its substance. And so one of the things I really tried to do with Seeds of Control was to map out an alternative tradition of green imperialism to show, as I, as I point out in the introduction to the book, that green imperialism comes in many different hues, that there's not this one size fits all model to how colonial conservation or scientific forestry developed in colonial contexts. And the Japanese empire, I think, offers a remarkably rich opportunity to showcase that alternative trajectory of green imperialism. Yes, it's true the Japanese uh, the Japanese foresters who populate my account absolutely immersed themselves in the prevailing currents of scientific forestry. They traveled to Europe and enrolled in European forestry academies in France and Germany, which have long been sort of thought of as the cradles of modern scientific forestry. They undertook surveys and study tours of uh, lumbering operations across North America and Europe. They translated the treatises of British foresters in India and French foresters in Algeria. So in that sense, they were very much plugged into these global networks of knowledge and uh, best practices uh, that were informing colonial forestry operations uh, across the globe. However, uh, they also clung very dearly to their own traditions of forest management. They routinely invoked Japan's centuries-long traditions of silviculture that Connie Totman writes about in, in the Green Archipelago. They pointed to their own sort of ideologies of environmental management and land use, things like iriai these shared communal agreements that had long structured village life and uh, use and, and agricultural labor and resource redistribution. They pointed to the writings of medieval poets and environmental treatises of Tokugawa philosophers. All of these people, these traditions, these texts were used to highlight Japan's own uh, unique and supposedly timeless tradition of forest stewardship. And they did this in part to signal their own credibility, their, their, their own green thumb, but also to invoke a pan-Asian tradition of forest stewardship and conservation. Especially when we get into the 1930s and into the 40s, the Japanese were trying to nurture sort of a sense of solidarity with the rest of Asia as they set out to build a co-prosperity sphere and uh, pointing to their own distinct traditions of land use of forest management was one tool, was one way that they kind of appealed to that deeper history of Asia, that they were going to free the rest of Asia from the yoke of axe-wielding Western imperialists and raise up the forests of the region uh, with their own enlightened stewardship. And a lot of this, as I point out in the book, is also deeply tied into the kind of emperor-centered nationalism that 
takes root in the Meiji period, that the, the emperor himself was routinely positioned as the great forest warden of the realm. And so much of Japan's imperial forestry practices are carried out in the name of the emperor and his resplendent forest realm. So that's just one example of kind of the ideological currents that I think in in some ways are distinctive to the Japanese empire uh, and that should prompt us to think a little bit more carefully and, and critically about the relationship between Japan's empire of forestry and that took shape in other colonial contexts, in European colonial contexts. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's a very refreshing way of looking at empire, I think, because many studies will look at the destructive elements of, of empire, whereas this is uh, an interesting new angle of well, there, there are still destructive elements, of course, to afforestation, as you've raised with bringing in invasive species and such, but it's a bit more unexpected, I suppose. And it, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying about how it's uh, great to kind of bring uh, the Japanese empire in some global discussions of empire too. So, yeah. Let's look at this from a Korean perspective. Who in Korean society took part in this Japanese forestry initiative, and to what extent was there collaboration and or resistance? One of the things that really drew me to this topic early on was the, the fact that the forestry enterprise in colonial Korea touched the lives of everyone urban or rural, Japanese or Korean. We tend to think of forestry as this thing that's carried out on in distant hinterlands, on hillsides and in mountains. (laughs) It happens over there. But the actual implications of forestry uh, are real and uh, ripple out through society and are felt uh, profoundly in urban areas as well. Uh, And in the Korean context, I think this is uh, most clearly expressed in the politics of fuel. Uh, as many of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware, uh, the Korean Peninsula sees quite frigid, severe winter temperatures. And so fuel demands over the, the long and frigid winter there are substantial. So there, there was no working around this fact in the colonial context. And in some ways, fuel politics became uh, even more fraught as Japanese settlers began to make their way into the Korean Peninsula, uh, only kind of compounding the demand for these already scarce fuel resources. So in that sense, forestry was something that was intimately linked to the everyday lives and concerns and rhythms and routines of everyone on the Korean Peninsula. Um, And uh, that's something that I I really try to drive home in the book that we can't just write about this as this abstract uh, exercise of natural resource management. It's something that is inextricably bound up with the everyday and even sensory experiences of uh, life in colonial Korea. And, and I, I try to bring some of that to the, the fore, especially in the final chapter of the book. As far as kind of particular groups of Koreans who are affected by Japanese colonial forestry reforms and, and policies and this framework for greenification, uh, there are a, a good number of communities who 
feel these effects more than others. The the uh, it, it's it's very much uneven in that sense, and by far the um, the brunt of this, the labor, the fees, the lifeblood of this enterprise uh, is carried out on the backs of Korean farmers um, and agricultural laborers. Uh, those who can only watch in frustration as the land survey effectively expropriates or encloses uh, mountains and forests that they had long enjoyed access to. So unsurprisingly, there's a considerable amount of resistance that I uh, write about in the book. And this resistance takes many different forms. Sometimes it's as subtle as um, just ignoring uh, rules, collecting fuel or pine needles or, or burning types of fuel that you're not supposed to. Uh, in some cases, it, it unfolds under the watchful eye of the Korean language press, especially over the 20s and 30s in this kind of shift to cultural rule, when there, there's a great deal of scrutiny that Japanese foresters face uh, in terms of the access to woodland resources. And occasionally, every so often, as I also write about in the book, it flares up into truly violent forms of protest. Yes, there are there are many forms of peaceful demonstrations and protests, but occasionally there are also violent clashes between these agrarian communities and foresters who in rural areas are really the face of colonial officialdom. Uh, I don't think it would come as too much of a surprise that uh, Japanese colonial foresters are often the, the first uh, to be targeted by uh, agrarian communities in these uh, remote areas because they're the first to come into contact. Uh, they kind of symbolize uh, the encroaching interests of the colonial state itself. And, and so there are pretty routine, there's a steady string of violent incidents between farming communities and the foresters that they, for good reason, perceive as a threat to their, their livelihood and, and access. Um, and as I show in the case of Tanchon, a rural area that is really kind of at the heart of these uh, resistance movements. Sometimes these villages organize into really large movements of resistance and descend on the, the field offices and local police stations to make sure that their demands are recognized and heard and responded to. Uh, and in the case of Tanchon, that tragically turns into significant loss of life surrounding protests over uh, the formation of a forest owners association. I go in, it, I go into great detail in, in the book itself, so I'll spare your listeners of that story here. Uh, suffice it to say that uh, the, there is fierce resistance. The forests, after all, are spaces of of subversion and stalwart resistance. It, it, here, it's perhaps worth recalling that guerrilla insurgents of, take refuge in the Korean mountains and forests over the course of the colonial period. None other than Kim Il-sung himself, the founding patriarch of North Korea, stages his insurgency, his attacks on the Japanese military and, and police forces from uh, the mountains of the northern provinces. So uh, if, if there are any spaces that are 
kind of recalcitrant to colonial control. It's precisely those placed under the authority of the Colonial Bureau of Forestry. And for that reason as well, I think if they're really rich uh, sites of analysis. So there's resistance. There's also a great deal of collaboration. The Japanese Bureau of Forestry and the bureaucrats who staffed it knew better than to simply commandeer and expropriate wholesale forests from these agrarian communities. They develop a rather clever, you might call it cunning, framework through the woodland uh, survey to essentially cleave off a lot of this land, to enclose it as national woodlands, and then to outsource the greening of the so-called bald mountains to Japanese settlers and corporations, and to a lesser degree to Koreans, um, under the pretext of reforestation. So they basically tie ownership rights to um, reforestation projects. But they know that if they just do this outright with any sort of concession to uh, these Korean communities, that they're going to have um, a real political problem on their hands. So they also make concessions uh, along the way to provide Korean farmers with these little bite-sized plots of land that are perhaps enough for individual households or villages to meet their fuel requirements. They, they really aren't, but they're enough to say, look, we're listening. We're providing avenues, pathways to, for you all to gain access uh, to to these resources that are essential, not just to your livelihood, but come Korea's winter survival. Uh, I mean, when, when we're talking about uh, resource politics, we're talking about access to uh, sources of fuel, fertilizer, and, and fodder that are, are really a, a matter of life and death in a lot of these rural areas. Um, so on top of that, uh, they also create a number of Japanese-style institutions that bind these Korean communities uh, to Japan's own kind of framework for environmental governance or environmental rule. I write extensively in the book about the creation of forest owners associations. Uh, these were kind of semi-official governmental institutions that allowed the Japanese state to impose particular forms of discipline and economic order on village life, but also to make it seem like the Korean people were governing these forests themselves. In reality, they're really not. But this is just one of many examples of the mechanisms through which the Japanese colonial state sets out to kind of build ties with the countryside so as to cast it in the particular mold that they see as most aligned with their broader developmental agenda, both for the countryside, uh, but also for urban areas where there was an insatiable appetite for building materials and fuel and other materials furnished from the forests. The last form of colonial collaboration that I, I want to quickly point out is scientific collaboration. I devote a, a chapter in the book to the role played by Korean scientists in helping Japanese foresters, forest scientists, botanists, and, and uh, other technicians 
better understand and calibrate their approach to silviculture in particular to the material realities and climatic realities of the Korean peninsula. Uh, many Japanese arrived to the peninsula convinced of the superiority of Japan's own planting practices and determined to basically transplant the best of Japan's flora onto Korean soil. They learned the hard way that that wasn't going to work. And so they relied quite heavily on Korean collaborators, on Korean scientists, uh, on field guides and technicians of other types to help them better figure out would grow, what methods worked, what methods didn't, what seeds and saplings were worth investing in and propagating and what to avoid. You can't tell that story without uh, appreciating the centrality of Koreans and their own knowledge forms to that process. And, and so I offer kind of two examples of Korean scientists whose kind of signature is, is everywhere in the colonial forestry project when you look at it through the lens of the forest experiment stations uh, that were also really key sites uh, in terms of the transformation of the Korean landscape, but, but, but also the transculturation of uh, Japanese forestry policies uh, and traditions uh, to Korea and its landscape. And this is not, yes, this story is particular to Korea, but it could also be told about Taiwan and Hokkaido and Karafuto, where there were also forestry experiment stations. So uh, another underlying goal of the book is to situate the Korean Peninsula within these broader knowledge networks that transcended colonial boundaries and really stretched across the empire as a whole. The subtitle of the book is Japan's Empire of Forestry in Colonial Korea. So yes, it's a case study of Korea, but the empire of forestry is a term that I used to develop a much broader framework that encompasses the forestry project not just in Korea or in Manchuria, but in Taiwan, in the South Seas, in Karafuto, and later on in places like um, Indonesia and the Philippines during the war. So, so the book it does, while things are anchored to the Korean Peninsula, uh, it also tries to situate Korea and its forests within this broader empire-wide framework. Fascinating. As the title of your book, Seeds of Control, suggests, you argue that the goal of forestry by both the Japanese Empire and subsequently the Park Chung-hee regime was social control. Can you expand on how planting trees can lead to state control over a population? Uh, in a lot of different ways. So the, the Japanese colonial state, first and foremost, uses the broader infrastructure of greenification as an instrument of land redistribution and expropriation. So uh, I would argue that that really is kind of the, the beating heart of, of social control, uh, being able to kind of control the, the actual contours, the boundaries of ownership through this broader reforestation project. Uh, but they also, if you look kind of under the hood of this greenification framework, they are tying land ownership and the kind of mechanics of reforestation to other forms of social discipline. Uh, for example, fuel economies. Uh, the Japanese are, colonial state is very much invested in transforming what 
and how the Korean people domesticate heat, what they're burning in their ondol stoves. Uh, they, they want them to stop the burning of pine needles, raking up detritus and other nutrient-rich uh, substances from the forest floor, and instead burning charcoal in newly kind of developed modern stoves. So they tie things like forest ownership to these intimate spaces of the home, things like the domestication of heat. Uh, another example is hwajon in Korean, firefield farming, kaden in Japanese, Sweden agriculture more generally. Uh, if there's a boogeyman of deforestation in Korea, it's the fire-wielding farmer, the, the hwajon mean. So the Japanese also try to use this broader infrastructure of greening the landscape and conserving the forests to stamp out the vestiges of Sweden cultivation, uh, what, what they see as anathema to their own broader agenda of developing these areas into resource reserves and other key sites. So the mechanics of greenification are, are tied tightly to different forms of social control. Uh, this is to say nothing of kind of the ideological register. And it's something that it, it, it's hard not to see important continuities and resonances with the rural revitalization effort of Pak Chung-hee, which is another regime that is defined by its disciplinary character. So as I develop in kind of the conclusion of the book, Pak Chung-hee in many ways succeeds where the colonial state failed to use the broader mechanics of reforestation uh, as a vehicle for a much more far-ranging set of forms of social discipline. I see. So what has been the legacy of Japanese forestry in Korea, both in the aftermath of the Asia-Pacific War and today? I love the example you gave in the beginning of the uh, elderly men who were cleaning a hillside, as, as they said it, of acacia. So please do share more about that anecdote with us. So there are the, the legacies of colonial forestry in Korea and elsewhere are many and various. They are material. As the anecdote that I opened the book with suggests, some of the trees, seeds planted uh, during colonial rule remain in Korea to this day. That particular anecdote that you've pointed to is a story about acacia, sawtooth oak, which was an important tool both for the colonial administration and for Pak Chung-hee in terms of erosion control. And so it's everywhere you turn. It's fragrant white flowers in Korea, I think, offer a, a reminder of uh, this deeper history and these sorts of uh, continuities in forest and environmental governance. Another really fascinating example that I don't devote as much attention as I would like to is uh, the cherry blossom. Japanese settlers were adamant that the colonial state introduced cherry blossoms into urban areas, uh, that Japan's own kind of traditions of revering uh, the cherry blossom in and enjoying the blossoms in spring, uh, that that tradition carried over into the Korean peninsula. Cherry blossoms were planted in urban areas in parks and green spaces across Korea in the colonial period, and they exist in Korea to this very day. But the, the Korean people themselves 
have indigenized those traditions in really interesting and complicated ways. Uh, they've introduced, for example, Korean varietals uh, of the cherry blossom uh, so as to kind of claim it as their own, to distance themselves from this deeper, deeper history. There's also ongoing disputes over the origins of the cherry blossom itself, whether or not it, it uh, Koreans would claim that it actually originated in Jeju Islands. This is one example of how flaring nationalism in Asia spills over into questions of Sylvan nationalism, kind of whose forestry traditions are greater and, and grander. Those, those are very much uh, realities um, that color geopolitics in East Asia today. So there are material legacies, there are institutional legacies. The forestry school at uh, SNU, Seoul National University, started in the 1920s as Japan's premier forestry research academy in colonial Korea. So there are some important institutions that have carried over. And there are interpersonal vestiges as well. Some of the Korean scientists who I mentioned earlier who are trained in colonial Korea's forestry schools go on to play an outsized role in greenification under Pak Chung-hee and, and to preside over South Korea's remarkable reforestation initiatives of the 1960s and 70s. This is a very fraught question. The question of colonial legacies is one that looms very, very large. So I don't want to suggest that the green verdant landscapes one sees in South Korea today are due to Japanese colonial rule. That's not at all the case. But I, I do want to point to really striking parallels in the kind of greenification efforts uh, one witnesses before and after 1945. North Korea is a whole nother can of worms sure. uh, that I, I, if we had more time, I, I, I would love to discuss in, in more detail. Well, I have to have you back on for that one, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> given the heated rhetoric today against deforestation around the world, are there any who might consider this to be a rare ecological positive that came out of colonialism? So I would be very hesitant to call this an ecological positive. What I'm really trying to do in the book in Seeds of Control is to prompt readers to think much more critically about the very nature of reforestation itself. We live in a time when experts the world over are calling for breakneck reforestation uh, to mitigate against uh, um, deforestation, climate change. And I'm totally on board with that agenda. I, th I think it's, it's absolutely essential as one piece of how we move forward in this climate emergency. But I would also caution, and I think this book is, offers a cautionary tale, that we need to think carefully about what reforestation means for the different parties involved. The consequences of the greening of landscapes are felt unevenly for humans and non-humans alike. Uh, so the, the case of colonial Korea, I think, offers us uh, a story of a darker shade of green, uh, one that reveals the uneven power dynamics uh, and um, uh, inequities that are sometimes built into these larger projects of reforestation. Uh, and, and so I, I wouldn't so much call this a story of an ecological positive as a cautionary tale and a, a prompt for us to reconsider 
what reforestation should look like moving forward. Sure, definitely. Well, thank you for answering all my questions, David. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? Well, thank you very much for having me. I have three uh, ongoing projects. Uh, one of them is an outgrowth of the book that I've, I've just discussed, and it's a project on the Oji Paper Company, uh, historically Japan's largest consumer of Asia's forests, uh, both before 1945 and into the present day. So it's an effort to kind of better appreciate the material underpinnings of Japan's much celebrated paper and print culture. I just finished co-editing a volume called Forces of Nature, uh, New Approaches to Korean Environments. It's an edited volume on Korea's environmental history, uh, and that will be forthcoming in 2022 from Cornell University Press. Uh, and I'm also co-writing a book with uh, my good friend and uh, colleague, uh, geographer Kerry Caracas, on the, the firebombing of urban Japan during World War II. Uh, it's something we've been working on for a decade now. And so we're, we're now kind of wrapping up a book. And it is actually connected to our conversation in one key way, and that's wood. The U.S. Army Air Force recognized the vulnerability of Japan's paper and, and wooden cities uh, and set out to, to burn them down. So in, in, in some ways, there is a, uh, it, it can be understood as an outgrowth from, from this project. But that, that larger project is housed at japanairaids.org, uh, which is a, a digital archive that Carrie and I have been building, at making publicly available documents from our research for a very long time now. So if anyone's interested, I encourage them to, to visit japanairaids.org. Great. Lost again to there. Thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You can find a link to David's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Ellen Van Houten, professor in Japanese humanities at Kyushu University, to discuss capsules of fate. Ellen's research focuses on the history and archaeology of Japan's early and frequently changing capitals from the Asuka to the early Heian period. We explore why these capitals were moved, what the criteria was when creating a new capital city, and the influence of practices from mainland Asia. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.